Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talks show. I'm Connor Beaton, host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. And joining me today is Mr. Ken Page, and we are going to talk about relationship dynamics. We're going to talk about uh, dating and gender roles and a few really incredible topics. But uh, Ken Page is a renowned uh, psychotherapist and a leading voice of hope and wisdom for everyone seeking to find and cultivate healthy, lasting love and relationships. He's the host of the Deeper, Deeper Dating podcast and author of the best-selling book, Deeper Dating, How to Drop the Games of Seduction and Discover the Power of Intimacy. Uh, he's been featured on Psychology Today. Uh, he's a blogger, uh, the Huffington Post. Uh, he's been featured on uh, O in the Oprah Magazine, the New York Times, Cosmopolitan, The Advocate, and so many other platforms that I won't even go into it because I think you get the point by now. <laughs> he's been featured on some incredible, uh, incredible platforms. His work has been highly acclaimed by numerous top thought leaders, including Harville Hendricks, and uh, Haley LaKelly Hunt, Ariel Ford, Edward Howell, uh, and Chip Connolly. So he's been featured on a, on a ton of platforms. He's got some really great uh, insight. Uh, Ken is uh, openly gay and is married to his husband. Uh, they have kids together. Uh, and so we, we actually talk a little bit, because uh, I've actually, well, I realized I hadn't really dove into this topic before, but we talk about some of the similarities between the heterosexual and homosexual communities uh, with men. We talk about some of the differences between the two. We dive into some of the gender roles of men and women within the constructs of relationships and how that can sometimes impact uh, the depth of intimacy. It can sometimes impact what we are wanting sexually, uh, what we are willing to explore or not explore. And so this is a really interesting uh, episode in the sense that it kind of goes a little bit first into Ken's personal story, and then it goes a little bit into gender politics, and then we actually tie that into relationships and dating and love and intimacy and unpack some of the things that can help us all uh, connect more deeply in our intimate relationships. So without any further delay, please welcome Ken Page. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Connor. Yeah, we are going to we're going to talk about uh, you know, I think just before we came online, we, we were talking about the, you know, the the truth a little bit. And it'd be interesting to look at the truth of dating here uh on the show today. But before we dive into uh dating and and some of the stuff that that we're going to be covering like gender role rigidity, which I am excited to to dive in and and talk about. I have to start off with the question, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today? I was husband hunting. I was looking for a partner. I mean, I was doing that for decades and decades and not having a lot of success. But um, when I did meet my husband, I was at the Provincetown Gay Family Week and I had met Greg, liked him, but he was there with his kids and they were taking up a lot of his focus. And so um, he didn't seem very available. So I let that drop. And at three in the morning, one of those nights, it was a week long event at three in the morning, I was kind of awakened, bolt upright 
with an intuition message. And I've gotten those a few times in my life and they have changed my world. They've often been around love and relationships. But the message was, if you don't work on this, you're going to lose this opportunity. And I sat up for quite a while after that. And I made a plan and I told my son who was like six at the time or seven, I said, let's go get some breakfast and sit on the stairs of the school when everybody comes in. We could just say hi to people. I did not tell him my little dating plan, but um, it worked. And Greg was there. It still took a while longer after that for us to get to connect and have a date. But that bolt upright moment in the middle of the night and that message of go for this changed my entire world and my entire future. Mm. That's my story. Nice. No, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. I, you know, I think we oftentimes have those moments. You know, I, I hear a lot of people talk about the power of their intuition, but sometimes can't seem to quantify it, you know, or we, 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 we rationally don't comprehend what the intuition uh, is, is really telling us. And I think that sometimes we get in the way of being able to listen to that deeper sense of, mm. uh, of knowing, you know, Einstein said that the rational mind is a faithful servant and the intuitive mind is a sacred gift. And we've created mm. a culture that honors the servant and has forgotten the gift. And so, so once you had that moment, once you had that moment of intuition and, uh, or, or if that's what you would call it, but, once you had that moment, how did you start to pursue? What, what did you do to shift? You know, it was marching orders. It was marching orders from my gut, my soul, my heart. So I just roused myself and said, all right, I'm doing it. I mean, you get a message like that, you listen. And I've gotten messages like that before. I remember when the message came to me that said, I want to be a dad. I had no idea what it was. And I have to say that a, a a wonderful, wonderful resource that I have is the bathroom. Hmm. Because when I feel the, 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 if I'm like at a restaurant or a public event, I'll just say, I need to use the bathroom. I might not go to the bathroom, but I step away because I know that they're in the middle of the public. I won't be able to get it. But when I'm quiet and I remember the time that that happened, I thought, what is this really strange stirring in me? And I listened and I listened and it came really clearly and it was, I want to be a dad. And God knows that changed my world <laughs> um, in, in amazing ways. So, yeah, there's a treasure to that voice. And, uh, and then when you hear it, you listen, baby, because it's marching orders from your soul. Mm, such a good way of putting it. You know, I think one of the things that we're going to dive into, we're going to dive into quite a bit here on, on dating today, but... I am curious. One of the things that we that I haven't really actually explored are the are the challenges of you know being a a gay man and and dating and finding you you know a partner. And one of the things that I've heard time and time again from friends from clients that are that are gay and are trying to find a partner is that it's a very different landscape uh, and it's a very different culture. And so I'm. I am curious if you can give us some context into maybe some of the challenges that that gay men face when it comes to the dating scene that is that is fundamentally different from what a straight man might experience and and what the similarities might be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think I want to start with the similarities because 
Whether you're an 80-year-old single widowed woman or a 30-year-old gay man or a 50-year-old straight man or woman or whatever it is you are, there is some un- there's a deeper physics to dating. And that deeper physics is what works or doesn't work depending on how much you do it. And what that comes down to is the more you treasure and dignify and honor the person you really are underneath your most tender spots, your most fierce spots, the places where you live the most deeply, where you feel the beating heart of your humanity, the more you honor those, the more likely you are to find love. The less you honor them, the more likely you are to end up in masochistic situations that don't last, don't work, chip away at your sense of self-worth. And that's true for everybody. And so I think in the most fundamental ways, the experience of dating for a gay man is just no different than for anybody else. And for my book, Deeper Dating, I did a lot of research. I interviewed a lot of people who were in good relationships. And I found that people who were paraplegic lived the same experience of what worked and what didn't as those people who were, let's say, you know, young and healthy and able-bodied. It's the same deep truths. And the truths are truths of self-honoring, generosity of spirit. My friend Chip Conley, who wrote the book Emotional Equations, he captured my book perfectly. He said, here's what it comes down to for me. If you're looking for a soulmate, you gotta learn how to lead with your soul. And uh, that's the heart and the soul, no matter who you are. So I want to say that first, because I think it's that's hopeful, it's inspiring, and it's a big deal. So that said, I think that, um, you know, gay male culture is constantly changing. I'm 62 years old. So the gay male culture that I grew up in, your recreation, your dating, your way of meeting, all those things for most of us were through the adventure of anonymous sex, of which I had tons and tons of, because I was I was raised in that tradition. And that tradition caused a lot of damage for me. I had a lot of fun too, and a lot of adventures, but it caused me a lot of damage. And I think, I think to some degree though, that's a through line in gay male culture is the hookup as the means to meet. And that sucks. It's just a really bad way to find good love. Um, and I think that, you know, I think all of us are sculpted toward a hookup mentality, or most of us are, most younger people are, through the apps, through those ways of meeting. Um, but I think maybe for gay men, somewhat more. And I think that the dishonoring of the importance of deep love, family, kids, a network of social connection, because those things have been so dishonored and disallowed for gay men. We look for quicker fixes, and those quicker fixes really often don't work. But the world is changing. The world is absolutely changing. So I think as we become more and more allowed to be part of the village, part of the community, as that happens more and more, you know, we, we, we choose kind of healthier mm. ways of dating and meeting. I think another thing in gay male relationships is that open relationships are kind of more uh, more normalized, more validated uh, than they are in, in heterosexual relationships. And I got a lot to say mm-hmm. about that, too, because I think that's a problem. 
in many or most cases. But I think those are some of the differences. I think also in the heterosexual world, you get to meet people everywhere and in all different kind of walks of life and all different ways of meeting. If you're a gay man and you're not in a major urban center, it's going to be a lot harder for you. And I think that the degree to which um, our connections aren't normalized, to that degree, we're going to like choose not so good ways to meet and connect. And I, I think something else too, and this is like a little bit radical here, but I think that for anybody, we need to know our gifts. And some of the gay male gifts of sensitivity, tenderness, vulnerability, a connection to art, et cetera, et cetera, are parts that we need to treasure, but that the world doesn't really honor. And there's fascinating research, uh, studies of indigenous cultures, where in many, many indigenous, indigenous cultures, the two-spirit, the gay, the queer people were the ones who almost always were the shamans, the medicine men, the healers, because they supposedly had one foot in the world of the masculine and one foot in the world of the feminine, which was considered more sacred. And now I want to say this to every guy in the world, that that is true for all of us. And our ability to hold what they call our expressiveness and our instrumentality, traditionally called masculine or feminine, is the marker of our own greatness. And the more we hold both, the more amazing we're going to be. That's true for gay men, straight men, everybody. So that was a mouthful, but those are just some <laughs> of my initial thoughts. No, it's it's wonderfully put, and I think you know I, I I have seen there's a there's a bunch of stuff that I want to touch on there before we move on, and and you know I do want to talk about some of your perspectives on dating and relationships and, you know, because you've got some really great pieces that are in your book, um, especially when we talk about, you know, the, the sabotager, uh, the saboteur, Ooh, I guess you could yeah. say, of, of healthy love. And so we're going to get to some of those things. But I am, I am curious first, you know, like, why do you feel like the, the hookup culture is so um, rampant in, in the gay culture and, and where is that coming from? Cause there's, I think on the, on the outside, you know, it's a very, uh, Trevor Noah actually on uh, comedy central did this piece the other day cause he was talking about pride cause pride's coming up and, uh, he did a, he did a whole piece about it and he, he was kind of like, you know, uh, joking a little bit about how all, all the you know guys look they're sort of just like ripped and chiseled and <laughs> and he and he's like is that like a is that like a you know a, a, a sort of like part and parcel of being gay and he's like no, you know he, and he kind of he's poking fun at himself of you know of course i can't be because you know he's he's like i'm not in good enough shape but um but just getting back to the question why do you feel like the the hookup culture uh is so prominent in the in the gay community yeah, yeah. Um, well, I have, a, I have a number of thoughts on that. But I guess the two biggest ones are, uh, I don't know, it does seem like guys as a whole, and I know this is stereotyping, but like you get two guys together and sex is going to be more likely. Like guys think about sex in a very kind of direct way, I think. Mm. And so I think that's a part of it is like the male wiring. I don't know how much of that is unfair stereotyping. But it is something that I think is true. So that's one piece of it. The second piece is 
that in our history, it was the only way to meet. You didn't get to meet at a family dinner. You didn't get to meet when all of the friends were hanging around. Everything was in the closet. The place you got to meet was uh, a surreptitious dark spot. And because of the aura of shame around gay intimacy, the way that shame around deep, true intimacy has been inculcated in gay men, the quickest thing to go for is sex. And I, I think that this, this is in another male category, is that for men, profound shame around tenderness and sensitivity and vulnerability is like a universal thing. I think gay men who accept themselves maybe, you know, have a have an edge up on that. And actually, John Gottman, who's a wonderful, wonderful researcher about marriage and relationships, has said that he feels like the uh, LGBT community is a model for where the heterosexual community be, will be in about 200 years, because they've had to get rid of so many of the crippling gender role stereotypes in order to survive. Anyway, so for a gay man, the historical past is that we had to meet in dark secret spots and for a short period of time. And there's such an ache of loneliness and a hunger when you grow up as a gay man. There's such an ache for a desire for touch, for connection, for partnership, for romance that's been deprived and deprived and deprived. So you put those things together, this fierce, fierce, sharp, piercing ache for a connection, a short period of time, a secret spot hidden you're going to go for the quickest bang for the buck, and that is sex. So this combination of shame and desire together, I think, has bred that. But also, there's something else, too, and that is that, that the, 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 the queer liberation movement is also a movement of sexual liberation. And so I think that gay men discovered, hey, we have the freedom to be wildly sexual. Sexual. We don't have to be ashamed. We don't have to be retreated. We don't have to be embarrassed. We can totally embrace this sex thing. And, you know, early on in gay culture, and I won't go on too long about this, but early on in gay culture, gay men experience the incredible erogenous zone of their nipples, for example which is something that for straight men and, you know, for gay men in the past, that was not, you know, it just wasn't really allowed, but it's this incredible erogenous zone. And the gay community, actually, people wrote about this. Oh my God, there's this part of ourself that is dripping with sexuality and potential and nerve endings. And then, and then the, the anus is another part that's just filled with nerve endings with incredible possibilities for pleasure, but pleasures that were not really allowed for men because those things were too feminine. So that was part of the liberation was this explosion of sexual possibility. So that's another piece of it as well. And I think all of those things combined led to um, just a kind of channeling of connection into the sexual realm again and again for better or for worse. And there was a lot of worse there mm. because if you just go towards sex and you skip intimacy, and you skip vulnerability, and you skip the deep work of connection, man, you are going to end up lonely. Mm -hmm. That's what happened to me for decades. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a really interesting perspective. And 
you know, I appreciate you bringing some of that forward. And I mean, it's, it's interesting that you touched on shame and, and some of those other pieces and, you know, having it hidden the shadow and, and uh, the, and the impacts of that are, you know, obviously very, very challenging. And it, I can see how that would create that culture. Um, because now as it's becoming more and more acceptable, it's becoming more, you know, normalized and out in the open and not that it's fully there, but it, it is becoming more a part of our day-to-day culture. Uh, you know, you have people like Pete Buttigieg, who's, you know, running for president and he's, you know, openly gay and married. And, and so, you know, there, there's a lot of conversation now around, well, what if the next president, you know, is this uh, you know, is, is gay and, you know, is, is a married man. It's like, well, that's, it's interesting, right? It's showing the progress. And while it's coming out in the, into the open, it is, uh, interesting to have these conversations and talk about how, uh, the impacts of it not being out in the open have, have sort of created different challenges in, in the culture. One of the other things that you touched on and, and talked about there was gender roles. And I know that this is something that, um, that, that I definitely wanted to, to dive into, but maybe just give us a little bit or give the listeners a little bit of a, uh, maybe just a, a sort of foundation on what general rigidity is and, and uh, maybe why it's challenging or can sometimes be detrimental within the, within a relationship. Oh yeah. Lots to say about that, but <laughs> um, encapsulated form picture. Uh, a switch that only goes right and left. And you can only like that switch only goes in two different directions. And then picture, uh, let's say a light switch that only goes on and off, let's say, or it's only got two colors. <laughs> let's say the colors are pink and blue, and that's the light switch. That's the gender binary. Now imagine a lighting console with the richest rainbow of color possibilities in all different mutations, all different forms. There's just an endless variety of color spectrum possibilities. That's gender freedom. The first is the gender binary. You're pink or you're blue. And what that does is it robs us, it enslaves us, it robs us of so much freedom And we're herd animals. We get terrified of going too far out of the fold. But when we can embrace all the different parts of our our gendered selves, the, the spectrum of who we are, we become such rich human beings. But we have been trained to be terrified of that, absolutely terrified. And I guess I would just love to share a little story here that captures that for me. Please do. Yeah. So, okay. So this was during the time of AIDS and, um, my prayer was always that I wouldn't get AIDS and that my best friend, Michael wouldn't get AIDS. That was my prayer. And then it was that so many other people wouldn't, but Michael was, I I have no words for how close I was. And, you know, this was like my innerest inner circle and, and Michael got AIDS and Michael died of AIDS uh, his journey, his journey of healing and art during that process was was breathtaking. But he was really sick and he was doing really bad. And I couldn't cry. I just couldn't cry. And I went to a therapist. His name was Harold Kudin, a wonderful, brilliant therapist and um, a gay man. And I went to him because I, I said, what's wrong with me? He's the best friend I've ever had in my entire life. And I'm going to lose him. 
and I can't cry. I feel worried. I feel bad. I feel anxious, but I can't cry. We had a whole session about that. And toward the end of the session, he said to me, can you sense the part of you that has the tears? And I said, yes, I can. And he said, get an image of that self. So the image that I got was of a woman, a very fertile kind of, it was like a fertility goddess kind of woman. And that was the image. And, you know, um, that was awkward for me. It was a little uncomfortable. But he said to me, just feel yourself into that self. And I felt myself into this kind of very, like, like curvy, uh, heartfelt earth mother woman. And the tears poured out. And I could finally cry. I needed her. I needed access to her to be able to feel my tears. That's just one example of this beautiful spectrum of gender freedom that all of us need to be able to have. And he helped me have that at that moment. And it was the key. That's powerful. And and I appreciate you sharing that and kind of getting into it and being able to have such a, a vivid example of... You know, I think what I've often talked about in the past is having like the masculine and feminine essence within us um, yes. and and being able to understand. I think I think the challenge comes and you know, I'm curious to to maybe just to to talk about this for a second. I think the challenge comes when, you know, as a yeah, as a straight white man. I think for a lot of people, we kind of get into this space of saying, well, what's wrong with the, with saying like, I am a man or I was born a man. Um, and I, and I think that there, there becomes a little bit of questioning around, around, you know, you were putting out the, the, the rainbow before that there's all these different frequencies, there's all these different, uh, forms that it can show up in and, and I'm I'm curious as to how that how that plays out, and like is is there is there anything wrong with us conforming to saying okay I I am a man and or I am a man who uh, is straight or I am a man who is um, bisexual or I am a man who is gay? Um, do you feel like the the rigidity within the gender roles doesn't allow people to to open up to their sexuality or doesn't allow people like, like what does the gender rule do that causes a a form of oppression? I think that that's maybe what I'm trying to get to. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I was on a panel with uh, Kristen Beck once who uh, uh, a movie came out about her and um, Kristen is, is transgender male to female Navy seal wildly decorated, fierce beyond words, Navy SEAL, who's transgender. And, and uh, she said, she said, look, here's the deal. We get told that we either have to be successful as a man and be Conan or successful as a woman and be Barbie. And he said, I, I love Conan, but I love Barbie too. So why can't I be both? Now that was his truth. And that's what he lived. For some people who were born in a male body, but feel down to their bones that they're truly essentially a female, they might need to actually become a female or transgender male to female person. Many people, though, but but, but the point is this. 
when it comes down to a choice between authenticity or gender role conformity, baby, you want to be able to pick authenticity wherever the hell it leads you. And if that authenticity is a delight and a celebration of your masculinity, 300 cheers. That's authenticity. That's beautiful. That's to be celebrated. We cannot be ashamed of our masculinity, of our genitals, of our, of our, our, of our maleness. But that's usually a lot less of the problem than being in bed with your partner and wanting to express something as a man that feels kind of too vulnerable or too submissive and feeling like I can't cross that. I call it electrified tripwires of gender taboo. Like, no, I cannot do that because that's going to be shameful to reveal that part of myself. Or I cannot tell you, and I talk about this all the time, I cannot tell you how many times I have known women who are powerful and accomplished and they've been taught, including by really big teachers and psychologists and therapists, uh, women don't let go of your femininity because that's what you have to embrace. And if you if you don't stay with your femininity, you will scare the alpha men away. And I cannot tell you how many women who are powerful and fierce and embodied are taught and trained that that's going to scare men away and that's something to be ashamed of but the truth is baby there's someone for everyone and 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 the more we allow ourselves authenticity over gender role conformity wherever that lands us on the spectrum at a given moment that's freedom and that's power and i promise you there're going to be people who are attracted to someone just like you as you do that so that's my overall big thought is, is it's about authenticity, mm. but there are these tripwires of gender taboo. And it's this fabulous process of thinking, what am I afraid to show because it's too masculine? What am I afraid to show because it's too feminine? And as a therapist, what I've come to discover is that stuff, the stuff you're afraid to show because it's too masculine and you're a woman or it's too feminine and you're a man, that stuff is nuclear. And when you embody whatever that is, you will explode into your greatness in a way you couldn't even imagine. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I, I think when the, the, the through line of authenticity is pretty clear and, and it's pretty, you know, straightforward and simple. And I do think that, you know, more, more men and more women could abide by that that sort of very simple legislation, I guess, <laughs> dating legislation or life legislation. I'm not too sure. Maybe legislation is, is the wrong word because it's not sexy at all. But I do think, I do think that it's, it's, it's interesting to see how, how do you feel just from your perspective? Cause you know, you're, you're uh, a therapist and you work with people on, uh, on these pieces on dating. How do you feel that, that gender roles impact like the gender role rigidity impacts dating and, and relationships. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, this is a kind of funny thing. I used to run these dating events called deeper dating. They were events that were kind of based on dignity and values and fun and people connecting in really respectful, caring ways. And I did events for heterosexual events, gay male events and uh, lesbian events. And this is just like something I noticed. What I noticed was 
that the gay men tended to be kind of shy, but then they would warm up and there was a sense of vulnerability and tenderness that was really allowed. The heterosexual events were more painful because the folks had to get out of just so much trauma, so much gender role trauma, so much kind of struggles, the men struggling so much with like uh, showing their heart, showing their vulnerability, women struggling so much, so much with, um, I'm sick of being the one who shows my vulnerability when the guys don't do it. There was just a lot of backed up pain there. The group that was the most fun was the lesbian group. I have to say they played, they laughed, they showed off tattoos. They, they were warm. They were funny. They were fierce. It's just, it's just something that I saw somehow they were the freest. It seems to embody all those different parts of themselves. So, so that was really a cool thing. Not that lesbians have it necessarily easy in dating. I think that, that, okay, I'll talk about gay men first. And I'll say that we have been trained like all men. No, I'm going to talk about men. Forget gay men. I'm just going to talk about men. We have been trained to be ashamed of our vulnerability and our tenderness. We have been taught that that makes us not alpha men, not masculine men, not sexy men, not desirable men, that there's a pro there's a, there's a uh, trauma. What trauma does, what abuse does, it hardwires it. It, it surgically bonds the most precious parts of ourselves with pain. And we men have had that done to us, that our tender spots, our vulnerable spots have become surgically bonded with shame. And that sucks. And that makes it really hard for us. So gay or straight, it's really hard to feel our vulnerability. That's a really hard thing. That hurts us in dating. That hurts us in sex. That hurts us in love. That hurts us in romance. Although I have to say that, thank God we're getting better. Thank God we're getting better at that. Mm. But I, I do really, I really do feel that that shame. And then for gay men, there's the added shame of being gay. But for gay men on the positive side, we tend to be a lot more free to show our vulnerability or tenderness or sensitivity once we move outside of that trauma zone. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a, it is a very interesting time now because people are, there seems to be like a simultaneous breaking free of gender roles and, and there, and, and, a and an opposing force to that, which is trying to cement them even more rigidly. And I, what I find so fascinating about, you know, needing to adhere, like I I can own, you know, I'm, I'm straight, uh, I'm married, you know, like uh, I'm very clearly a a man because that's how I identify. That's how I communicate as, but I, I think what's very interesting is that when I see movements that are, and it's mostly us as men, (laughs) <laughs> which is the interesting part when i see the movements that are trying to cement you know what a man should be and create this infrastructure of masculinity the the crazy part to me is that it's almost always tied to some religion and some nationalism and hmm. and it's entrenched it's sort of steeped in these other ideologies and other dogmas and it's like well why does you being a man 
have anything to do with the political party that you vote for? Or why does you as a man have anything to do with your nationalistic belief in gun ownership or et cetera, et cetera? It's like that shit doesn't matter. But that seems to be the expression of a certain type of hyper masculinity. And it's like when we go when we go deeper into or up the spectrum of masculinity, when you get to the more extreme sort of radical versions of masculinity, if you wanted to look at, at it like that, like just like if there's a, you know, a religious ideology, there's extreme and sort of more fascist versions of that ideology. When, there's, when you look at masculinity, the more extreme that we get, the more that it seems to tie to extremist beliefs and extremist ideologies within uh, a religion within a country. And it's interesting because I don't think that there's the same, and maybe I'm wrong on this, but I don't think that there's the same sort of sentiment of women, you know, that maybe maybe the radical uh, feminists are the equivalent, like the really radical feminists that like hate men and, you know, think that all men are rapists and all that kind of stuff. Maybe that's the the version, the counter force to the hyper, you know, misogynistic man. Yeah. But it, it's it's interesting. I, I It always baffles me. It's like, why does your masculinity have to be tied to these, those other things? Do you have any thoughts on that? I do. And I want to hear your thoughts on that, too. Like, like why that would be that. I think that's a really interesting perspective. And it's so true. I, I do have an immediate thought, and the immediate thought is this. If you picture a target, and the target is a landscape of our being, the closer you move in toward the center is the stuff that matters most. The plate, like as you move more in toward the center, that's like the core, core stuff. Survival, sex, love, survival, sex, love, those kind of things. The closer, the further you move in toward those the more possibility for joy and meaning there is, but also the more trigger of terror and fear there is. The more triggered we get, the more defensive we get, the more our immaturities and our defenses come up. And like you're talking about survival with the nationalism, you're talking about God with spirituality. And to me, I think in that way, it makes sense that our most primitive defensive impulses come up more when uh when we get closer to those zones of our being and i just want to add in a third one which is love and dating advice like dating advice is so primitive in so many cases mm. how much advice is there that you know teaches men that you need to be the seducer and you need to be the alpha male and smart caring teachers teach this crap and uh, with women that you can't let go of your femininity because you won't find an alpha male. Like, it's amazing to me that this kind of primitive thinking exists there. But I think it's like the closer you get to the most important things, the more easy it is to be triggered and defensive, mm. which would like bring you back to more primitive pictures of um, of gender role. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think the interesting, I mean, I, I would agree and... I would probably just add very simply that it seems like the more we get into the masculine, you know, we've, my wife and I have talked about this, like the, you know, the, the masculine feminine energy and dynamic and, you know, the polarity and the balance, the sort of dance that the masculine feminine does, the yin and the yang, however you want to 
however you want to label that. But the more that you sort of go into the masculine, the more that it really likes order and, and structure and the more that it really likes to have everything answered. You know, it's like everything has an answer. And I, and mm. I feel like <clears throat> there is a large, and it's a very appealing thing. Like I know, oh, that's so I, I know for me, that's a very appealing thing. It's, you know, I went through a, a period in my life and I see a lot of my clients as well as, you know, they, they come to me, they come and, 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 uh, and work with me. And in the very beginning, it's like, it's almost like they're just looking for the answer. It's like, tell me what the answer is and I'll just go do that. Tell me what to believe and I'll just believe that. And my, my training, my methodology is, is sort of closer to like a Zen Buddhism. It's like, I'm going to give you more riddles for you to figure out what you actually believe rather than me giving you a, another ideology to, to subscribe yeah, to. Yeah. But there is this huge surgence that I see right now, especially within the masculine sphere, gay, straight, doesn't matter, of people that are like, oh, here's the very concrete answer of what it means to be a man. And men are flocking towards that because there is a certain sense of almost like masculine safety in that. It's like, yes, that that's me. You know, <laughs> it's like I see my ego loves that because I can see myself in that. And and I can, you yeah. know, I I love the guns and I love the country and I love the all that kind of stuff. And not that there's anything wrong with that, you know, like if I lived out in the country, I would own guns too. I live in New York City, so that's not exactly of use to me. <laughs> um, so, of course, I don't, I don't own any here. Uh, but it, it seems to me that there's this thirst that we uh, as men have, um, and maybe it's not a man thing, but I'm, I'm just going to speak to, you know, as a man, because I'm, I'm sure that women have this as well to a certain degree, but there's a thirst that we have for a simplicity of order and structure to have an answer. And it seems like the, you know, there is a, a sort of moving away from some of that within modern masculinity to be able to reclaim the, you know, the gentleman lifestyle and the, and the poet and the philosopher and, you know, the, the different sort of types and archetypes of masculinity and sexual expression and all, all of that goes hand in hand with it. But I would say that the, the really uh, ends or sort of top or if, uh, extremist parts of masculinity, it, it's really about that. It's about a clinging to a, a, an absolutist form of answer. So thoughts on that? Yeah, I, that, 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 that there's something safe in that, mm -hmm. going back to that simplicity, and that there's a mystery that's a little bit scary when you cross lines. And when you cross gender lines, you know, there can be just a feeling of like a kind of fear or revulsion mm -hmm. or confusion that happens almost viscerally, like, no, that's not supposed to happen. And I think that, you know, I'm very thankful to the LGBTQ community for, for the way that they've led the way for change in that regard. I mean, I sit, my son's in high school and I see, I see high school boys shaving their eyebrows. Um, and like, like it's nothing for a high school boy to ride a pink bike mm. and have a, like a, a kind of pink and white knapsack, like maybe in some places it is, but here in the suburbs, it's not a big deal. You would be like, I don't know what would happen to you if you did that when I was a kid. And uh, it's just a joy to see that, you know, that happening. 
Yeah, just so it's it's I guess part of it is that that there's a kind of stretching of boundaries that then helps it become the norm, mm. which is a really, really good thing. And just one other thing I want to say about that is that the research on gender roles, the researchers now are using the words instrumentality and expressiveness instead of masculinity and femininity. And I really like that. Like, um, I don't do it yet, but I, I want to start trying to do that more. Like instrumentality being get things done, leadership, order, direction, uh, making things happen, that kind of like typically quote unquote masculine things, but now not related to one's genitals, just instrumentality and the other being expressiveness, which is uh, openness, vulnerability, fart, more like that mystery place uh, of, of being connected to your emotions, receptivity, etc. But the research shows that relationships, spousal relationships, where the man is kind of far toward that traditional masculinity, the woman toward the traditional femininity, are less happy and less sexually fulfilled. And relationships that allow more of that spectrum fluidity place are the ones that that in those relationships, people have the best sex and the closest connection. So. It's really make a ton of sense, right? I think like when we look at what creates really great sex and and really great um, dynamics, communication, that kind of stuff, it, it requires a bit of tension. And so if people are adhering to these very rigid, you know, very rigid roles and very rigidly defined, you know, how you communicate and, and what you are and are not allowed to say or do or want or desire – there's going to inevitably be a whole subset of desires and wants within the relationship, within the, the sexual realm that aren't going to be allowed to be expressed, uh, felt, desired, or, or even acknowledged. And I mean, it's, it's, it's very interesting because I think that more that, that we as men or women can move into this space of uh, questioning, I guess, what the rules are without, because I think that there is with, uh, maybe I'll get to that in a second, but we, <laughs> I almost got ahead of myself there. Yeah. But I think that, I think that, you know, if we question a little bit, the, the rules and the roles and we say, you know, does that actually work? Is that actually fulfilling? Is that really, truly what I want in my life? You know, I, I remember my my dad grappling with this because my stepmom made significantly more money than him, and she was a very high powered executive. And you know, his friends every once in a while would poke fun at him uh, mm. for for you know not being the quote unquote breadwinner in the family. Oh my God, friends, quote unquote. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. And it's like, well, well, what's, you know, and they would, they would make fun of him, you know, for being a kept man and stuff like that. And it's like, well, it's very interesting because for him, it was like, well, I don't, you know, we, they made a conscious choice where whoever's career took off first, they would, that, that person would pursue the career to its fullest degree. And the other person would be the one who would support the family. And so they both actively pursued their careers until, uh, you know, my stepmom had a few other opportunities. And so it's interesting to see that type of um, relationship at play and to see how how happy they have been, you know, and how successful they've been with that. Wonderful. 
And, but I think, you know, if, if they had tried to adhere to a very strict gender rule of my dad going and being the bread, you know, quote unquote breadwinner and my stepmom staying home and taking care of the kids, you know, would they have been, would they have lasted for sure? Knowing my stepmom, she would have been resentful at some point. And it's mm. not her, it's not her truest nature. Her truest mm-hmm. nature is this, you know, badass. She loves to do business, the whole thing. And so I yeah. think that when we get into relationships, regardless of our sexual orientation, being able to question some of these things that, you know, where have they come from? Why do we have to believe that? Um, but I also am curious, do you think that, that can be taken too far where we try and throw out everything uh, completely? Because it, it does seem like there's this swing in the opposite direction of, you know, no gender and no roles and no, and and so I think that there's a, there can be, from my perspective, a little bit of like lostness that can happen and, and confusion when these things get completely obliterated. And so I'm curious as to your perspective and, and how that impacts relationships. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's a complicated period that we're in now because, because there's, uh, so much uh, back and forth, so much unknown. But here's what I would say. And it's really simple. If your gender identity is defensive, to that degree, it's not authentic. Mm. If it's a role, to that degree, it's not authentic. For every one of us, and at different points, the question is just, what's the true me now at this moment? And am I ashamed of it? Am I embarrassed of it? Or am I able to find a way to live it? That's the only question. The minute you are being a quote unquote typical gender role because you think you're supposed to, the minute you are not being who you are because you think you're not supposed to, in either of those cases, you have denied your authenticity and it's going to create a vacuum inside. And that vacuum is going to attract bad situations and unhealth. Mm. And so the question I think in dating, in gender, in everything is what are the parts of my authentic being that I'm afraid of, that I'm afraid to show? A tiny example of this is that um, in bed with my husband, he's really good about like resting his head on my chest. And I love that. I love that feeling. It's scary for me to do that with him because it feels so vulnerable. I have to make myself do that. And it's a beautiful feeling, but it scares me because I feel too at risk and too vulnerable. That's a nuclear moment for me. Am I going to do that or am I not? If I don't do it, I'm cheating myself. If I do do it, I open up into a richer world. And that's the bottom line. The parts of ourselves that we feel vulnerable or exposed in sharing our our beauty is our magic is and that's the journey is embracing those whether they fit with role or they don't fit with role that's kind of the holy journey is saying yes to those parts Mm, so good well let's let's transition i know we kind of talked a lot quite a bit (laughs) quite a bit uh uh, you know about that topic and there's so much we did so much more that we could dive into you know there, there truly is but you know, let's talk a little bit about about dating and about relationships. And you know, one of the biggest things that that I've seen with men and women alike is how their insecurities uh, really impact the way that they date and the way that they show up in a relationship. And that can that can be 
uh, something that either builds connection or it can be something that that really is a blocker for connection. And so I'm I'm interested in your thoughts on what insecurities like what's the role that insecurities play in creating great relationships? Oh, what a fabulous question. Yeah, yeah, you know, uh something that I talk about on my podcast and and I write about a lot is how our deepest insecurities reveal our greatest gifts. And it's really really true. So every place you're insecure, here's the formula. Every place you're insecure, there's gold there. And I don't just mean gold like you can learn more about yourself. I mean, there's gold there. There's something valuable and precious in your personality and in your being. There is a gift there that you have not yet learned how to own or embrace Every place where there's insecurity, there's something precious there. And so we ask ourselves in our relationship, in our romantic relationships, what are the parts of myself I feel insecure to show? And those parts are where your deepest gifts. Why? Because we get the most wounded in the places of our deepest gifts. Our greatest insecurities grow around our greatest gifts. And in my work with clients, I see again and again, the places people tend to feel the most ashamed about parts of their personality or where they've been kicked the most or hurt the most are the parts of them that I think are the biggest treasures. And I see it again and again. So, you know, we think we need to date without insecurity. And so much of this dating advice says just be confident, be confident. No, baby, your insecurities are where your most precious parts lie. If you can name them and the places where you're insecure, when you find the right partner and you can show those parts of yourself, not defensively, not with shame, but just kind of revealing them, the person who's right for you is going to find gold there as well. We think we need to hide those parts, but we're really looking for a partner that can accept those parts. Mm -hmm. And that's why so much of the dating advice is like outside in instead of inside out. So yeah, that's a rich, rich thing. And it comes down to this, the parts of your personality that you are the most timid to reveal in your romantic life are where your deepest core gifts actually lie. Mm -hmm. It's an amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this, uh, it, it's very interesting because I think that I've had quite a few people over the last couple of years reach out and, and inquire about, you know, pick up, uh, pick up artists, courses and books and, yeah. you know, programs, uh, you know, women reaching out and asking about programs. I think one of them is called like the Swan Effect or something like that. And asking me whether or not they, they uh, whether or not I believe that these courses, A, work uh, and and B whether they'll be sustainable, but I think the interesting thing that really gets in the way is that those courses are designed to manipulate people's insecurities, and you know a lot yeah. of the pickup uh, stuff is designed to do one thing: it's designed to teach men how to position themselves as invulnerable and create and sort of force a woman's vulnerability. But the challenge, you know, it. yeah, That's but right. the challenge with that is inevitably there comes a time in the relationship once they actually start a relationship where where that the person that's sort of using these pickup tools 
uh, isn't being real. They're not being authentic anymore. And so suddenly they, their authentic self and their insecurities and their doubts and their, and their, you know, beliefs, they all start to come forward. And all of a sudden the other person's like, who the hell is this? <laughs> this is not, this yeah. is not who picked me yeah. up at the bar. And so it's really interesting because I think what you're saying is it's okay to have those insecurities. There's wisdom in it, as Ellen Watts would say, and, and our ability to call them out, bring them forward and heal through them with the right people really is a bridge to intimacy. Does that sound roughly accurate? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, but I would even take it a step further. I would say that not only is it an insecurity that needs to be healed, but the insecurity is a protective covering around one of your deepest gifts. And until you know the name of that gift, you're going to keep trying to cover Mm -hmm. it up. So whenever you feel timid about revealing a part of yourself, the question isn't so much, how can I change my insecurity? The question is, what's that part of me that I haven't learned to love and treasure and embrace and actually champion and lead with? That's what we don't get taught. And that's a really powerful thing. The places where you feel the most insecure are parts of you that are essential, that are basic, but that you have not learned to let out of the house, not learned to let it grow, develop, uh, mature, and be your unique genius. Mm Because those spots end up being our genius. That's always how it is, right? Like, I mean, to do the work that you do, Connor, how many parts of yourself did you have to retrain yourself to accept, embrace? I mean, that's so much of what you show and what you teach. I mean, to me, that's been so much of the work that you that you encourage here in this show. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I'd agree with that wholeheartedly. It's it's the process of yeah. of not necessarily unbecoming the parts of ourselves that we that we don't like but about seeing them and and learning how to love them more effectively you know it's like we have we all have problem children within us and we need to learn how to love them and i think that's yeah that's a great way of putting it so maybe what we'll end off with because i know we're running out of time and and um uh i feel like we could dive into all these pieces uh, we did talk about the saboteur before, and I want to make sure that we that we touch on that because I feel like that's an incredibly important piece of knowing what causes us to sabotage uh, great love and relationships and dating. So if you can just unpack that a little bit, I think that'd be great. Sure. I'll just say a few things about that. I'll say some broad stuff, and then I'll talk about one thing that I think is the greatest, the single greatest destroyer of healthy love that exists on the planet and what to do about it. Um, I know it kept me single for decades, and I mean decades. Um, So what I want to say broadly is that another way that we get false information is that we're taught that fear of intimacy is this like, like, like this disease, this pathology. But the truth is, if you're breathing, you have fear of intimacy. All of us have fear of intimacy because love is the most treasured thing. And to have it betrayed or lost or stepped on is the scariest thing. So to think that some people have fear of intimacy and some don't is just not true. All of us will be spending the rest of our lives addressing our fear of intimacy till our last breaths, I believe, unless we become enlightened. So that's what I want to say first. I want to say, You don't need to wait till you heal your fear of intimacy before you find love. You need to be opening your eyes about what your minefields are and learn to navigate those minefields with more humanity, humanity toward yourself 
humanity toward the other person. When you do that, that's just about as good as it gets. And it's hugely good. It's amazing when we can do that. So that's what I want to say first. We all have fear of intimacy. Can we hold it with humanity and compassion and insight? If you can, you are gold. And that's all you really need to be able to do because then everything begins to change on its own. So that's the broad picture that I want to say there. The other thing is that in my work, in my intensives, and you know, all of my work as a therapist and a coach, something I've seen again and again is those brave folks who can admit how they flee love and decide to do something about it, those are the people who are the happiest in relationships and the most successful in love. You get such a huge bang for your buck when you admit the ways you flee love and you start to disassemble them. That's heroism. That's bravery. And um, and the rewards are great. Even though, as, as the writer Vito Russo said, the truth will set you free, but first it'll make you miserable because it's hard to face that yeah, stuff. Wonderful. So those are some... Yeah. Yeah. I love that quote. So those are some broad stroke things. But then I want to just talk last before we close about, about what I call the wave. And I had this bad, I don't know if you've had it too in the past, but it's the thing where you meet someone, you're attracted to them, you like them, they like you. And all of a sudden you find that they're actually not going anywhere and they're available and they're interested. And all of a sudden you just want to run for the hills. That's a very natural thing, but I know it kept me from relationships for decades, decades, because I had it really, really bad. And I think, you know, and, and when I teach classes, I often ask people if they have that tendency. And I would say almost always more than half of the people in the room say that they know exactly what I'm talking about and they relate to it. And I call it the wave of distancing. We don't get taught about it. So most of us or many of us are victims of it because we don't know what to do about it. And so I know we just have just a, a moment or two left, but in simplest form, there are two ways to, if you're someone who deals with the wave as I have, here's what you do. The first thing you don't do is you don't flee. Don't flee. Don't flee the relationship. Don't worry. Don't worry if all of your feelings of attraction and interest disappear, evaporate, are completely gone. Don't worry and don't leave. Second, don't force yourself to do anything you don't want to do. Enjoy the person, take space, don't get too intimate, don't get too romantic, have a date that's fun, that allows more space. Don't scare yourself too much because what this is, is primal fear. And then the third thing I would say is think about the qualities that you like about that person and try to enjoy those qualities. Because the thing about this that we don't get taught is it's a wave and waves pass. This will, if you can follow these instructions, that wave of unconscious terror will pass. And when it passes, your feelings will come back in almost all cases and you'll have a clearer sense of who this person is. So that was just a nutshell version of what to do with the wave. 
Mm, wonderful. Well, I appreciate you laying that out because I do think that that's uh, very relevant for a lot of people and and not just in dating. I think that that very similar wave can happen in relationships as well, you know, <laughs> once, the, once the relationship starts to unfold. But listen, uh, this has been an absolute pleasure, Ken. Thank you so much for joining me in the show. I feel like we could have... Oh, vice versa. Yeah, I feel like we could have dove in uh, deeper to any of these subjects. So maybe I'll have to have you back on the show to to go into uh, into one or more of these topics. So thank you. I'd be honored. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. So for everyone that's out there listening, uh, if you enjoyed today, don't forget to share it uh, with just one person goes a long way to getting it onto the phones and into the ears of other people so they can hear this message and uh, tune into uh, this great in, wellspring of information from uh, guests like Ken. And uh, don't forget to leave us a rating and review from whatever platform you listen to, whether it's Spotify or iTunes, uh, Google Play. We are we're slowly everywhere. I think we're here, you know, Stitcher, just to name a few. So until next week, uh, thank you so much for signing in and join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. Mm-hmm.